Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Uh, this is Colin McEnroe. Uh, it's Wednesday afternoon. It might be Wednesday evening if you're listening then or if you're podcasting. I have no idea. It could be uh, 10 years in the future. Uh, whatever time it is here on Wednesday afternoon, we've just uh, experienced a remarkable, I think that's a fair word, uh, press conference by Donald Trump. Maybe there's no other kind, but the president-elect did give his first press conference in, I think, 167, 168, who's really counting, days. And uh, he covered a lot of ground. It was interrupted in a somewhat unusual way by about a 10-minute visit uh, from a lawyer, Sherry Dillon, to explain the Trump uh, administration's plan for isolating the president uh, when he sits as president from his business interests. And there's quite a bit of conversation going on right now about whether that's a good plan or not. Joining me in studio, I am uh, pleased to have John Dankosky, host of WNPR's The Wheelhouse and Next, uh, which is coming up uh, tomorrow. Uh, and Lowell Weicker will be joining us in just a second, former governor of Connecticut, as well as U.S. senator uh, and many other things besides. Lowell P. Weicker will be joining us in just a second. Later on, uh, Aaron Blake, political reporter from The Washington Post, Alicia Krauss, former senior producer for Sean Hannity. We want to get a conservative voice here. She's uh, currently uh, on KRLAAM, The Answer, in Los Angeles. So we'll find out how it looked if you're on the right and then also on the left coast, right? That's the left coast. Um, so John Dankosky, first of all, um, let's just say a couple of things about this. Um, one, I think it's fair to say uh, it did seem as though the, the president-elect's psyche is still at least 50 percent back in the campaign. He's still talking pretty much like a, a guy running for president. You know, some of the language is so interesting, given the amount of days, as you said, between the last press conference and this press conference. You, you might have thought that there would be some talk about how we pivot from campaign mode into, if not presidential mode, at least proto-presidential mode, and begin to talk and conduct a press conference like you'd be acting a little differently. But instead, he brought up Hillary Clinton. He brought up Lindsey Graham. When, when asked a question, uh, he sort of said something nasty about Lindsey Graham only getting 1%, I assume, of the vote in the Republican primaries. That's a long time ago, and as we'll probably talk about, he needs people like Lindsey Graham to help him do stuff in, in the Senate right now. So, yeah, he hasn't successfully moved at all past the uh, the campaign mode that we know so well. This looked an awful lot like one of those campaign press conferences. Right. He came out, and for a little while he seemed uh, somewhat presidential and uh, had a few presidential prepared things to say. And occasionally, while running through, say, his plan for the Veterans Administration and stuff like that, they had moments where he seemed plausibly presidential. But, you know, typically you don't, you're not still talking about your, your opponent. He talked about Hillary Clinton a lot, you know, on, on multiple occasions uh, in this press conference. But before we add um, uh, Senator Weicker to this conversation, I also I want to say something and get you to say something uh, maybe about, you know, a term that he used repeatedly to characterize these uh, reports that have appeared uh, on BuzzFeed and on CNN, although differently framed in each place. BuzzFeed uh, basically put up the transcript um, 
or the actual sort of documents uh, that purport to be some kind of intelligence report prepared by a retired MI6 uh, uh, agent and that that, uh, may have been uh, part of the briefings received by both President Obama and by President-elect Trump. CNN, you know, and and said sort of make up your own mind about this. We're not 100 percent sure, you know, what this is. But here, you might as well see it. Everybody else is seeing it. People have been talking about it, you know, uh, sub rosa for months. And CNN basically focused a little bit more on, well, who's seen this now? And, you know, is it part of the briefings and stuff like that? He used the term fake news. And to me, uh, Donald Trump at one point even, you know, kind of shouted down a questioner from CNN and said, you can't ask a question. You are fake news. (laughs) To me, fake news is a little bit different. Well, I've been having some back and forths with people on on the Internet about this for the last couple of weeks, because I think a lot of people think that fake news is if you get something wrong, as well as if you intentionally try to purport something to be true that just isn't. I think those of us in the news business believe fake news is when someone makes up something that is out of whole cloth, not true, and tries to put it forward as truth in order to spin some sort of political agenda. That's not the same as getting a story wrong or periodically making bad decisions. We did talk, however, a little bit this morning on The Wheelhouse, Colin, about, I I think, a a little third piece of this, which is the more fake news becomes what people take as real news, and the more real news organizations act as though they're going to take any bit of information and put it forward whenever they want, we do have a little bit of a degrading of the overall system. All that to say, the way in which he is continually badgering back and forth with Jim Acosta from CNN, literally in a shouting match, trying to get a question asked, this makes it very, very difficult to get the press to do anything other than just come after you constantly with guns blazing, at least the traditional press. Yeah, and we'll come back to that whole question. But yeah, I I do think there is a difference anyway between... You know, I mean, BuzzFeed and CNN, we can debate about whether they went too far, whether they, you know, were 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 hasty in, or, or reckless in sharing stuff that, you know, is imperfectly vetted. On the other hand, they said it was imperfectly vetted. They said, <laughs> look, this is what it is. We don't know. And you make up your own, own mind. Fake news tends to be sort of out there as a freestanding thing. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump in, in himself has often done things like suggest that, ten, that, that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of JFK or that, Donna, that President Obama was not born here in the United States. He's done nods of approval uh, towards Alex Jones of InfoWars, who engages and tra- traffics in really heinous. The, the most noxious person, per- perhaps in America, who who says out loud that the Sandy Hook shootings didn't happen. And this is someone who Donald Trump has talked about. But, but you get at one of the key points to fake news, Colin. Fake news suggests that I'm going to put it out there, and then the person who is the subject of that fake news story has to disprove the story. That's the opposite of the way everything works, including our judicial system, right? Right. Well, this is a new standard, and now Donald Trump is on the receiving end of some things that he may feel is fake news, but that's actually the way it works now in that world. Somebody puts something out there that says, I don't know, people are talking about it, and then you probably should think about answering a question about it at a press conference. Let's talk to a guy who's been through few press conferences in his life. Lil P. Weicker uh, was the governor of Connecticut. He was a U.S. senator. He was a, a member of Congress. Uh, he's given some press conferences. Uh, so first of all, uh, Senator Weicker, welcome back to our airwaves. Are you there? Senator Weicker. Uh, we may have to sort of jostle him uh, again a little bit. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to have the producer uh, do that for a second. One of the things we're going to get into with uh, with Senator Weicker is, um, I mean, he's 
as you've alluded to, I mean, Trump kind of was at loggerheads with several different groups of people. Obviously, the press. He's not on a good footing with the press. Um, Lindsey Graham. We'll come back to that in a second. And then the other group of people are the U.S. intelligence agents, uh, agencies, uh, the U.S. intelligence community, whom he kind of roundly denounced uh, in a way that seems odd for somebody who doesn't get sworn in for another eight days. And, and the U.S. intelligence committee uh, community, like an awful lot of the infrastructure in Washington, D.C., has been there in one form for a very long time and will continue to be there past a Trump presidency and perhaps, I don't know, when cockroaches are, are, are roaming the earth. The fact is, is that... They're there, and they're going to be able to do what they want to do. If Donald Trump wants to have a successful first 100 days or first couple of years of a presidency, he's probably going to need some folks in the U.S. intelligence uh, community to be able to be on his side, not to leak information to the press. Because you know what will happen is that if they continue to get talked about the way they're getting talked about, they will continue to leak information to the press, and people in the press will gleefully bring it up at press conferences or just put it online. And that's that's not a battle that almost any president's going to want to try to win against people who operate almost in a shadow government, a side government that plays by its own rules. That's what the CIA and the NSA and the FBI do. Right. I mean, there's been quite a bit of house cleaning, either planned or executed, of people who are part of the former administration. Uh, but these are people who are, I mean, you don't even know some of these people exist. So it's going to be very hard to get rid of them. They're going to be around, <laughs> and either they're going to cooperate with you or they're not. He hasn't really set a very good tone, starting with remarks like this one. tweet that you had this morning about are we living in Nazi Germany, what were you driving at there? What are you trying to tell the I think it was uh, disgraceful that the intelligence agencies allowed any information that turned out to be so false and fake out. I think it's a disgrace. And I say that, and that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. All right, uh, let's try again. Uh, Governor and Senator Lowell P. Weicker, uh, you've given a few press conferences before, and as a U.S. senator, you had a, a ringside seat for the relationship between a U.S. president and the intelligence community. Um, it, it seemed, as you watched this press conference, it might have seemed a little reckless for the president-elect, eight days away from his swearing in, to be talking in this way about an intelligence community he's going to have to depend on. What are your thoughts on this? I think that... Uh that part of the press conference really stood out in my mind as, as being, as you say, reckless. But the fact is, in about nine days, he's got to work with these people. And as a matter of fact, I think most Americans can be very proud of their intelligence agencies. Uh, so I, I, I don't know what he was driving at. Uh, it was in relation to this report that he says is false and denies. That remains to be seen. But uh, uh, it, to me, the erratic, the erratic presentation that Trump makes on almost any subject has me really very worried. I'm, uh, I, I admit I didn't vote for the man. I'm, I'm not a fan of his, but I try to analyze things in a pretty uh, uh, narrow way and, and one that's not, not partisan. And I'm seeing the most erratic behavior by the president-elect, and it just leads me to worry where we're going. I have to say also, I, I certainly have been uh, uh, impressed by the selection of his, of his cabinet. That doesn't bother me too much. But his own performance, uh, that, that's of concern. 
Um, one of the things he uh, talked about and one of the things he is going to be asked about again and again is precisely what his relationship with Russia is going to be, what his relationship yeah. with Vladimir Putin is going to be. Um, let's hear a, a little bit uh, of today. He was asked about uh, the the notion that Vladimir Putin was eager to see Donald Trump elected. Here's part of what he said. If Putin likes Donald Trump, guess what, folks? That's called an asset, not a liability. Now, I don't know that I'm going to get along with Vladimir Putin. I hope I do, but there's a good chance I won't. And if I don't, do you honestly believe that Hillary would be tougher on Putin than me? Does anybody in this room really believe that? Give me a break. So there's two or three things going on there, uh, Senator Weicker, including the notion that Hillary Clinton still is a choice that Americans have <laughs> instead of Donald Trump. But, you know, I mean, just that notion that it's, uh, you have a vast background in foreign affairs, the notion of even talking about whether or not it's relevant that Putin likes Trump. That, to me, it sounds like something an eighth grader would say. I mean, it, it's it, it, uh, whether or not he likes Trump has less importance somehow than what Putin's behavior is, what the state of Russia's behavior is, and, and what we have to do about it. Maybe you can say something about that. Well, I think we all understand uh, uh, Putin. He goes right back to the old-style uh, Russian dictator. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, I don't think we've dealt with him satisfactorily during the Obama administration. The incursions uh, by the Russians into various other countries, various other countries. That's you know, that's a no as far as I'm concerned. And we really, we've really not spoken up against it. So I don't, I don't think there should be any uh, doubt in anyone's mind that the behavior of Donald Trump toward Putin should start off on a level of you know, you convince me, uh, not one of well, you know, we we get along. We might not get along. Uh, that's nonsense. It really is. And again, that's one of these erratic types of views that, that, that concerns me as to the oncoming presidency. Well, and, and uh, Governor, it's John Dankosky, and, and thanks for joining us. One of the things that uh, we heard years ago was, of course, uh, President Bush saying that he had looked into Putin's soul, and I think that an awful lot of the foreign policy around Russia has been about the personalities, and as I think you put it right, that's not really what we should be talking about. Let's talk about Russia's involvement in, in hacking into the DNC and the, and the RNC now. Uh, in this press conference, uh, Donald Trump says for the first time, well, Russia probably was behind that hack of the DNC. I guess I'm wondering what you think the prescription for the president-elect going in should be to deal with this, not just specter, but clearly evidence that Russia is being involved in the U.S. political system somehow through cyber terrorism and, and espionage. I mean, what do we do to start to assure the American people that Russia isn't playing a very big role in, in American life right now? You know, what comes to mind is the statement of uh, Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. Uh, and that applies very much today to the words and actions of the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't trust him, uh, and I think there's a lot of verification that has to be done before we lock ourselves into any, any agreements. Somehow they've gotten themselves, you know, um, how would I put it, uh, deeply involved in the Middle East, and I think we ought to stay away from getting bogged down in that again. So 
but I uh, trust but verifies, I think, the attitude that we should take toward the Soviet Union at, the, at this point. You know, but it, it, to John's question, too, it almost gets back to what's the first conversation like between the president when when Trump is sworn in as president between the president and Putin? I mean, it can kind of begin one of two ways. One of them is, well, I, I'm glad you like me. Thanks for the help. I hope we get along, you know. And the other one could be if you ever do anything like that again, if I ever find out that you have attempted to meddle in the free electoral process of the United States, you and I are going to have a very serious problem. And, and you know, Senator Wecker, I think we kind of know that the conversation is more likely to be the first one rather than the second one. He doesn't seem that bothered by the attempt that Russia made. Yeah, well, I think, listen, is there any one of us on this broadcast that doesn't think that hacking goes on all the time between all the major superpowers? I mean, did, you, did it come as a surprise to you that Russia's hacking uh, the United States? And believe me, we're hacking them right now. You can count on it. So I don't, I don't, I don't really see what the big concern is there. I think there's a far greater concern in accepting Russia's uh, very aggressive uh, uh, antics, uh, as I said, in the Middle East and in other parts of Eastern Europe. All right, so we're going to grab a quick break here. Thank you so much to uh, Senator Weicker and uh, both Senator and Governor O. Weicker. They're the same person. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Hey, it's good to talk to you again, Colin. Take care now. All right. Well, what we're going to do, actually, is we are going to, when I say we're going to grab a break, we're actually what we're going to do is we're going to uh, go to a somewhat unusual source of commentary, but maybe the right one, uh, on a situation like this. Earlier today, I spoke to the great uh, comedian John Cleese of Monty Python, he has got a, a new uh, memoir out, and he's coming on Friday to the Bushnell to screen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and then there'll be questions and answers from the audience. There's a full SoundCloud audio uh, of um, a much longer conversation between me and John Cleese uh, that is available all over Facebook on my page and on our show page, and I'm sure it's up at the WNPR website, too. Uh, you're just going to hear a little bit about what he has to say about the gentleman we're talking about right now. We have to talk about something else, which is, I don't know whether you've noticed or not, John Cleese, but we've elected what a Monty Python character might call a very strange person uh, yes. to be president of the United States. But I did learn something this morning. I've always wondered how he got his hair that color. And I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we, can, we can leave it at that. But what do you make of all this? I know that during the campaign, I read interviews that you gave where you, yeah. I think you described him as delusional. It turns out we're li yeah. living in his delusion. I don't think we are, but I'll tell you something quite serious. You know, I wrote a couple of books on, co-wrote a couple of books on psychology, psychiatry with a, a famous English psychiatrist called Robin Skinner. He said something to me once, and I never forgot it. He said this. When you're with somebody mad, the first thing that you notice is that you think you're going mad. <laughs> and I think that's what's been going on, is that I think people are thinking that they're not quite right anymore, or they must have missed something. Whereas, you know, all this gaslighting, I'm not sure it's as clever as that. It seems to me that he is the classic bullshitter, that it doesn't really matter very much what he says, because... The words, the facts, they don't really mean anything. It's just to do with conveying a general uh, knowing what's going on and pretending you're smarter than you are way of behaving.
I think it's as simple as that. I think he just says whatever pops into his head. And if somebody says the Russians helped the EU in the election, he's going to say no, because if he said yes, it would slightly invalidate his election. Mm -hmm. So he'll say no, and he will deny it when there's probably very good evidence. But I think what's happening at the moment is just extraordinary. I mean, I had several friends who said he's going to be impeached before he's even made president, which I think would be great fun. Because how would you impeach someone who wasn't president yet? Could you do that? <laughs> well, we could try. Uh, I think you should. There's a lot of things. I that... think you should, because the latest thing, when, when I started hearing this stuff this morning, I, I listened to it, a, a very serious uh, interview with Jake Tapper and CNN, and I thought... They're being very careful about what they're saying. I think this is a big story. And then one of my friends has been on the internet. Just wonderful. You know, quite seriously, Connor, if anyone had written this, people would have said it's too much. The audience won't believe it. True. Just very quickly as we close here then, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that humor these days that's about this situation is on the one hand easier to do because you provide so much material, but also harder to do because increasingly the truths behind the humor are are so unpleasant and hard to endure. And it made me think about something that you said many years ago uh, in a very uh, generous-minded moment, I think, about Michael Palin, where you said you thought that he was especially funny because among the pipe he could do comedy that wasn't about anything. It didn't exist as a take on some pre-existing condition or set of circumstances. I think you might have cited the famous fish slapping dance as an example of that. That yeah, it, it was right. it, it wasn't about a thing that existed in reality. It was about something that was pure invention. And I'm finding these days, maybe this is my retreat from reality. I've watched the fish slapping dance a couple of times in the last week or two because I need that more than I need the humor yeah, that's really on point. I- I mean, I've also said, I say in the, uh, so anyway, that, you know, it's just come out an audio book and I was listening to a bit of it. And I said there that I think deep down we laugh at things we're scared of. Mm-hmm. I think if I look at my own sense of humor, the things that I'm most scared of, which is sort of meaninglessness and failure to communicate and anger. Those are the things that I'm trying to laugh at the whole time. I think that's part of what humor's about. I think it's taking a sting out of something. And that's why I think the sort of black humor that I very frequently use, people laugh and feel better as a result. I mean, I have a routine called Why There Is No Hope. And I just explained for 10 minutes why there is no hope that this planet will ever be a sensible, rational, or fair place. And people split a gut. They laugh themselves sick, and at the end, it's cheered them up. (laughs) So I think it's an enormous, enormously important part of our kind of evolutionary behavior, but I still haven't quite figured out what it's about. Mm. John Cleese, I know you've been so eager to talk to me since 1969 when I started laughing yeah, at you. You know, I don't know how I waited. Yeah, but thank you for being so patient. I didn't have time until now. Uh, but... <laughs> what a sweet thing for an interview. Thanks I for joining. funnier than necessary is very good. Funnier than necessary, that. yeah. That's the way to live. Thanks so much for doing this. A uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You know, John Dankowski, maybe he, maybe we should have him on all of our political shows. He may be a more on-point...
commentator on the political scene than anybody we could find. Some of the best political analysis of Trump I've ever heard is is this notion that, that when you are with someone who is mad, you begin to feel as though there's something wrong with you as well. And, and we saw that in, in even this press conference today. The way the press reacts to him, they're flabbergasted by the idea that he won't not just answer a question. He doesn't pivot away from it. He attacks in a way that's so strange that they get flustered. And and I think that that's what's happening to a lot of Americans right now. They're seeing this and going, I can't believe that this is actually happening. There must be something wrong with me because I can't be actually seeing the thing that I'm seeing right now. All right. John Dankosky, uh, he's going to be with us the whole way. Uh, and I'm sorry to break in with that, but I knew it was so important for John Cleese to get on the show. I, <laughs> I thought, can't believe I was on a show with I, John Cleese. i, I got to throw him a bone. So excited. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with some more political commentary, more analysis of the unusual press conference today. All right, we're back. Uh, we are talking about today's uh, press conference by the president-elect of the United States. With me in studio is John Dankosky, host of WNPR's The Wheelhouse. And next, coming up uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow at 2. Uh, and uh, we just talked to Lil Weicker. Uh, now joining us, Aaron Blake, a political pro- reporter for The Washington Post, uh, and Alicia Krauss, former senior producer for The Sean Hannity Show, currently in the morning co-host at KRLAAM 870, The Answer in Los Angeles. Um, before we get to either one of them, I'm going to sort of ask both of them what they think the headline is, or what's the news out of the press conference today. Um, One possible answer has to do with uh, how Donald Trump and uh, one of his surrogates, uh, the lawyer Sherry Dillon, uh, described the way in which the president would uh, either isolate himself or not from his existing business concerns. Let's hear a little bit of that. And what I'm going to be doing is my two sons, Don and Eric, are going to be running the company. They are going to be running it in a very professional manner. They're not going to discuss it with me. Again, I don't have to do this. They're not going to discuss it with me. These papers are just some of the many documents that I've signed, turning over complete and total control to my sons. You know, Aaron Blake for The Washington Post, um, one could easily write five different 1,500-word stories about this press conference and have none of them overlap and all of them be uh, interesting and in their own way complete. But I think heading into the press conference anyway, this was one of the big looming questions. Supposedly, he was going to tell the United States uh, what he was going to do about the conflicts between his business uh, and his job as president. Um, in, In general, how do you think the news about that out of this press conference is going to play? Well, you're right. This is supposed to be the big news out of this press conference. In fact, it was the focus of the press conference going back to mid-December when it was originally scheduled to be held. This was supposed to be an event that was all about that. Uh, They wound up having to buy some more time before they wanted to announce exactly what was going to happen. And eventually the press conference, the first one in almost six months, uh, happened today. It started off a lot more general, as you mentioned. As far as the business stuff, I don't think there was a whole lot in there that surprised many of us. We pretty much knew that Don Jr. and Eric were going to take over the company. We knew that Ivanka Trump was not going to be involved. Her husband 
uh, is taking a, an official role in the administration, uh, Jared Kushner. Uh, so the, the, at, the, the, the general details of what we heard about today weren't all that surprising. I think the one maybe new thing that we didn't see coming was the New Deals thing. Uh, Trump had previously said he would not enter into any new deals. His organization, rather, would not enter into any new deals during his presidency. Uh, they've gone back on that a little bit. They say no new foreign deals, and they say new domestic deals will be thoroughly vetted uh, for conflicts of interest. So I think that's maybe the one big takeaway here. But you're right. There was so much more news uh, just because there had been such a backlog of things that we've been waiting to ask him about all this time. Right. And we should say that th- there's been a kind of outfield or a tinkers to Evers uh, to chance. I guess that's an infield of ethics spe- experts who've come to the fore. It's Richard Painter uh, from the George W. Bush administration and Norman Eisen from the Obama administration and the constitutional scholar Lawrence Tribe. And they've sort of set up a framework for evaluating this stuff. They've got a 20 page paper. They've got a five point plan. that's up in Politico, uh, Aaron. And and uh, I don't know what the, the other two have been doing for the last hour, but uh, Norman Eisen's been all over the airwaves, basically saying it, this doesn't really hit any of the marks. I, I thought Sherry Dillon made kind of an impressive uh, presentation anyway, and she said a lot of things that sounded good. It doesn't seem so far as though the people who want this to be a high bar are getting what they want. Without question, it, it's a disappointment for them. Uh, he's done basically nothing to increase his his avoidance of conflicts of interest in response to those criticisms from people like Tribe, from Eisen, from Painter. Uh, and, and really this traces back to something that we knew was going to be an issue, which is that his the size of his empire and his business contacts around the world and domestically is just so large that it presents an unprecedented number of potential conflicts of interest for a president, uh, and he's doing things now by not putting his assets in an official blind trust. Uh, having your children run your business is not a blind trust uh, that other presidents has done. So, so he's both has these on one hand this numerous amount, huge amount, unprecedented amount of potential conflicts of interest, and he's going less far to uh, to prevent against them becoming an issue during his presidency than his predecessors have. And so uh, I think that the reaction from the ethics community is going to be pretty resounding that this is not good enough and this is a disappointment to them. Um, Alicia Krauss, uh, Sherry Dillon, uh, the uh, very able lawyer who rolled out all these ideas, um, was, I thought, an interesting combination of somebody with some clear legal acumen and also kind of an enthusiast for, for Donald Trump. Uh, but she, she attempted to construct a case that, to say not only does this satisfy most of the standards, but to do other things would be almost impossible. To do the kinds of things the experts uh, on ethics are talking about just wouldn't even really be workable and might even make the problem worse. Well, do you th- she even kept stressing the Constitution, too, over and over. It sounded a mix of legalese talk that was very complex with lots of securities vocabulary that a dropout like myself didn't really understand and took notes and then asked attorneys that I know about it. Um, And in some parts, I felt as if she sounded a mix of attorney and campaign spokesperson based on, like you said, how glowingly she spoke about the Donald. But I think overall, it was pretty well structured. And and some attorneys, I I understand Aaron's concerns, and I've I've read that report from those gentlemen that you mentioned. Um, And I think structurally, 
what she said about selling the company to the kids kind of made sense. And But I really think that the average American person doesn't understand, and they're going to read the headlines from their Trump-leaning websites that they go to or their social media sites that are Trump-leaning that they go to and say, oh, look, he said he's separating from his business. That's all we wanted him to do all along. Uh, I, I think that there is definitely a nitty-gritty of this, and but it, it does seem kind of interesting to me that they apparently have been working on this for a while. Maybe that's why they postponed the original December 15th press conference that he was supposed to have and moved it to today. I think them moving the press conference today had more to do with him wanting to take the news cycle away from Barack Obama one last time, though. <laughs> Could be. So, John Dankowski, one argument you can make is people know who they're electing. And so Barack Obama was a constitutional scholar and a community organizer. George W. Bush owned a baseball team and he'd been governor of Texas. Bill Clinton had been the governor of Arkansas. Donald Trump is who he is. And one argument that could be made is, well, what did you think he would, did he strike you during the campaign as someone who would cease to have any interest in all the money he's made in his life? No, and in some ways, one would think that his entire uh, political view that he's taken over the course of the last few years as he got into this world and then eventually made his way all the way to the the precipice of, of becoming the president of the United States, it all was to build a little bit of brand equity, right? What's better than being president of the United States if you want to put up Trump hotels all over the place? At the end of the press conference, he says, kind of as a joke, uh, that, you know, if, if the boys don't do a good job running the businesses, he's going to go back and say, you're fired. He had to get that in. But that suggests to an awful lot of people, well, he's going to go back and do this, whether it's after four years or eight years or a couple months, if uh, <laughs> if some of the things that we've been talking about actually happen. And he'll be very, very happy doing it, having built up the brand equity in the Trump brand that only the presidency can, can relate it. I don't think anybody thinks that he would have done anything different. You know, Aaron, the Washington Post is done a tremendous job of just reporting on this kind of thing. Uh, all of you or you know, many of you uh, have been looking into either the foundation or or the businesses. Um, a while ago, the Post, I think it ran under three bylines, did a piece in which they quoted Donald Jr. saying Russians make up a pretty disproportionate uh, cross-section of a lot of our assets. Um, we see a lot of money pouring in from Russia, which is kind of different from the picture that was sketched out in the press conference today where there was you know very minimal business entanglement w- uh, with Russia. There are lots of other questions that were stirred up by this whole conflict of interest question, whether or not Sherry Dillon's uh, definition of emoluments and what can be done about them covers all kinds of emoluments. What happens when Ivanka Trump starts uh, importing stuff for her clothing business? Um, I'm assuming the Washington Post newsroom is humming right now with people just sort of fact checking and investigating a lot of the the things that came up in the press conference. Yeah, I thought it was particularly interesting just a couple days ago, uh, David Farenthold, who who people may recognize, did uh, basically all or a lot of the reporting on the Trump organization, the Trump Foundation. Uh, His new beat is basically half of it is defined as the emoluments clause, which is this (laughs) thing that people may, you know, probably still don't know what they are. They're going to find out pretty soon if they're if they're watching politics. You know, I I think it's important to, to note here in all of this is it's not just a question of how much Trump does to make these ethics experts feel better about this situation. It's also about how much of a problem he's going to create for himself in the White House. Now, he could go through his whole administration and not have a whole lot of controversy concerning potential conflicts of interest, things that that come about during his tenure, uh, or there could be a whole bunch. This doesn't stop today. It's, it's, it's very much a long-term thing for him. And so, you know, I think this is something that's going to be 
a feature of reporting on his his presidency throughout, and that's why we have people uh, like David Farenthold taking on that beat full time, just because we're expecting it to be such a, a major theme of this administration. But, but I think it's important, Colin, to, to note that it's not just going to be you know, reporters at the Washington Post or the New York Times. It's not just going to be, you know, a bunch of ethics experts. Donald Trump and a lot of Donald Trump's uh, voters don't care about ethics experts or what the Washington Post writes. But if there's a series of lawsuits that come from competitors, people who feel as though he's gaining unfair advantage because of the business dealings he has, this is something that Norm Eisen was just talking about in in a very lengthy um, appearance on MSNBC right after the press conference. Look, that does cause an enormous amount of worry because if he faces lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit about potential or real conflicts of interest, that tends to eat away at the presidency. Right. Well, well you go I, ahead, Alicia. Yeah. I think a question, too, is then I, really his his voters, you're totally right, aren't, aren't going to care. I mean, every single area where whether people on the left in media or mainstream media or even in right media like me have been attacked is, you know, you cannot touch the Donald. He can do no wrong. And and I think a lot of today's press conference was a, a mastermindful play to his base of, you know, hey, guys, look, I, I didn't do this to, uh, deal with my buddy Hussein in Dubai, and it cost me $2 billion. But, look, I'm so ethical. I didn't do that deal. That the things that he says – and, and the attacks that come on him or the reporting, the accurate reporting that, that he faces, and then, unfortunately, the fake news that he faces just bolsters up those supporters. So I think, really, the media reports that we've seen with past presidents can kind of, you know, chip away at that stone. But unless it's something like the SEC or a Republican Congress willing to go after him for business violations, I don't know that anything's going to be able to touch him. All right, uh, let's grab a quick break here. We'll have more of all of this panel uh, for our final segment when we come back. Wait a minute, there's no cabinet nominee for the Ministry of Silly Walks. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, Betsy Kaplan, Pants, and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Jeremy Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Miss Universe. You can keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing to The Colin McEnroe Show on any major podcast platform. On tomorrow's show, Spielberg turns 70, and we bake him a cake. And now... Back to Colin. And uh, with me today, uh, first of all, thanks to the entire team. It really did take a village to do this show. And so they, everybody pitched in. Uh, in studio with me is John Dankosky, host of WNPR's The Wheelhouse and Next. Although I should mention that tomorrow's episode of Next is hosted by Brad Pitt. Uh, it's not just, uh, did anyone run that by you? Is that, I don't, I don't mean to be telling you, the person telling you this. <laughs> It'll but, be yeah. fine. It'll yeah. be fine. It's not just Tom Hanks hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. This is a, a big trend now. Uh, and also joining us right now, Aaron Blake, political reporter for The Washington Post, uh, Alicia Krauss, uh, former senior producer for the Sean Hannity Show, now with uh, KRLA, The Answer in Los Angeles, where she's a morning co-host. So, um, Alicia, you know, talking about Trump maybe playing to his base a little bit, this press conference began in a very unusual way. Even before Trump arrived on stage, uh, Sean Spicer was already kind of getting into it with the press. When uh, Donald Trump was on stage, uh, he uh, engaged in in a pretty raucous uh, exchange with CNN's Jim Acosta. Let's hear a little bit of that. Go ahead. Go, Go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, not you. Not you. Your organization's terrible. Your organization's terrible. Let's go. Go ahead. Quiet. Quiet. Go ahead. She's, she's asking a question. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. All right. So that's uh, his opinion right now of CNN. Um, obviously, and we can get to Aaron about this in a second. This is a little different from typical presidential decorum. Not that press conferences don't get a little chippy <laughs> or edgy. Sometimes. Anything less. Right. So talk a little bit about this. Is, was some of this just simply, you know, as you were saying, this is a way of eating into some of the luster of President Obama's speech last night uh, to create uh, a lot of excitement today. Is, is some of this theater? I think some of it is theater, but I also think that we know that Donald Trump takes things very personally. And so, um, obviously, all of us here on your show understand that the BuzzFeed report was very different from the CNN report, that NBC News is now debunking the CNN report. And there's so many tentacles of this story and reporters and, and, and outlets rightfully looking into this and going, okay, so what's real and what isn't? And, I mean, the Trump campaign and Sean Spicer should actually be thankful that BuzzFeed did something that I think was uh, journalistically unethical by releasing this, you know, alleged memo from this former operative that was doing investigations into tr- Donald Trump on behalf of Republican and Democratic operatives because it provided Trump cover to not have to answer questions. Now, do I think his behavior was okay there? Absolutely not. That's something that, you know, former Obama speechwriter John Favreau and I were debating and actually ended up agreeing on earlier today. But I think that there's an element of you know, he likes to deflect, and, and time after time, I don't understand why, but the media gives him the opportunity to deflect. I personally think, especially with Rex Tillerson's, uh, you know, nomination hearing happening on the Hill today, that his comments about wanting to be a friend or wanting Vladimir Putin to think he was a friend and how he'd like to work with Russia to defeat ISIS and stuff was more alarming and should be the headline everywhere, but instead it's going to be about Jim Acosta. Hey, hey, Colin, I just have to say very quickly, but one thing in what you just said that I think is very important, Capitol Press Corps, get the memo right now. Ask one question at a time. Ask a question you want answered. Don't ask four questions. Just ask the one. Yep. Because th- if you're going to ever get anything and you're going to get this man on the record trying to a- answer a question that you need answered, you got to do it incrementally one by one and follow up on each other. You can't do the thing you've been doing for all these years. So, Aaron Blake, I mean, uh, there's so many different questions about what the uh, President Trump press operation is going to be like, uh, whether or not they're going to be sort of typical briefings. And uh, as part of the Washington Press Corps, were you all looking at today trying to figure out, is this basically how we will be interacting with the Trump administration? And and what lessons did you learn? I think we kind of have to expect the unexpected. You're right. The briefings may not be as regular. The press conferences won't be terribly regular, apparently, uh, although I would add they, they haven't been terribly regular Uh, under President Obama. They certainly weren't with Hillary Clinton's campaign. So uh, Trump isn't completely unique in this in this way. Um, You know, the the way we're reporting on Trump has always been kind of necessarily uh, unique and new to us. He's a completely unorthodox candidate. uh, And and so we're kind of figuring this out as we go. Uh, Certainly, there are people who haven't been happy with the results of that. Uh, There will always be critics of the media, and we have to look at that criticism and take it to heart when it makes sense. Um, But but this is going to be an administration unlike any other, and we're going to have to cover it in a way that's not similar to how we've covered 
the last couple of administrations, I think. Yeah, and so I, I want to get uh, hear from both John and, and Alicia about about this too. So, and John, I'm going to start with you actually. So, uh, NPR uh, did a thing today, where, which they've done throughout the campaign, where they basically were as much as they could, fact-checking this press conference in real time. So you've got President-elect Trump talking about the Affordable Care Act, saying it's a total disaster, saying premiums are up. And then you've got in this feed Allison Kojak, NPR health policy correspondent, sort of, you know, cross-checking that with some reality, which doesn't necessarily correspond. But I don't remember that happening in Obama press conferences, too. So, I mean, I'm wondering whether one could say, is there a necessary double standard or an unfair double standard? Well, I I think, and you can read it both ways, right? I heard the promo this morning of what NPR was going to do, and I said, huh, I've never heard that before, (laughs) that we're going to live fact check uh, a presidential press conference or a a, a pre-presidential press conference. Um, Yeah, is there a double standard? Yes. Is this, as we've just heard, an entirely new type of presidency? Yes, that might require some new tools, but I can see how that feeds into an ongoing narrative in America and certainly among Trump, amongst Trump voters that the press is untrustworthy and that they will gang up in whatever way possible on this president in a way they haven't ganged up on other presidents. I, I don't know that that's necessarily something that we want to start getting into. At this point, we haven't even had the first real presidential press conference uh, of his uh, administration. Well, Alicia, you have access not only to your own thoughts, but those of Ben Shapiro. How, how is that narrative playing out? Uh, I, I think it is kind of fascinating. And two things, I think Ben and I agree on this, two things can be true at the same time. The media can be biased and Trump can be a buffoon. And, and I think that there's an element of, you know, we're, we've been sitting back and for eight years looked at Barack Obama, President Obama, you know, who, of course, did his farewell address last night, avoiding questions, dodging questions, scolding reporters, et cetera. But the level of how he treated them, you know, the tone was different or the approach was different or it wasn't as big league or huge as, as, you know, the Donald does it. So it kind of it ruffles the feathers a little more of the press. I just got to say that hashtag nerd prom is going to be real awkward going forward. And, and I don't think that you're going to see the glowing love and association that you have from the White House press corps toward President Obama, toward uh, uh, Vice President-elect Trump. And I would hope that, you know, I'm, I like it when my side is ideologically consistent and principally consistent. And part of the reason why I was never Trump is because he was not and the people surrounding him are not. But I would hope that he would, as president, do a lot of press conferences, but there was a precedent that was set by President Obama where he didn't really answer media questions that often, and then when he did, he would scold them or ignore the questions and the follow-up questions that he didn't like, or we found out after the fact that they were all pre-approved so he could prep for them beforehand. Um, I think that Sean Spicer has his work cut out for him. And it's, he's not going to have it as easy as Jay Carney or Josh Ernest did, that's for sure. I, Alicia, I do want to ask you, though, I mean, you know, the Washington Post is going to be thought by many uh, millions of Americans as a left-leaning newspaper, even as it's one of the largest news-gathering operations in America and a newspaper of record in a lot of people's homes. I guess I'm wondering from you, Alicia, how some of the press or the media on the right uh, is going to handle Donald Trump. I mean, it's not like there's not questions that need to be answered about foreign entanglements and uh, business dealings and actually just public mm-hmm. policy from from your side of the aisle either. Well, and I, and I think it's unfortunate because I think you're seeing a greater polarization of the a separation of who's going to go after him or who's going to actually do their jobs as reporters and journalists. I don't claim to be a reporter or journalist. I get paid for my opinion, and it's a political and it's a biased opinion, but there's still things that I want journalists to do, no matter who they're doing them for. And I think that, you know, Jake Tapper seems to be a good reporter. You have people at NRO and The Atlantic and other outlets 
um, asking tough questions, but I think that you will see a continued division between maybe the Fox Newses and the Breitbarts versus the Daily Wires and, you know, the NROs, like I previously mentioned, when they're not just going to toe the line, like the people that are going to toe the Trump line versus the people that aren't. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens, not just to the Republican Party, but you're accurate there in your speculation of what's going to happen to conservative media and who will hold Trump's feet to the fire and who won't. Aaron Blake, you're going to be, get the last word here. We've got a couple of minutes left here. I mean, the thing we haven't really spoken about, although we've alluded to it, obviously, is that the sharp words from Sean Spicer and from Donald Trump had to do with this uh, complicated report from a questionable source that the uh, most of the legacy media hadn't really known what to do with or hadn't really decided to go with. What's the status? of this now, this notion that there's some information out there that right or wrong suggests that Donald Trump is blackmailable or may have a dossier with the Russian intelligence that, that has stuff that he wouldn't be particularly proud of. How How's the Post going to handle this? Well, I, I haven't been involved in those discussions, but I, I, you know, my belief is that this is something that we've not wanted to go into detail upon. This is uh, all information that's been unconfirmed. It was produced as as Spicer and as uh, Trump noted today by somebody who is basically working for Trump's opponents. So you can make an argument that they were looking for some pretty salacious and juicy things to include, and they certainly found them without going into detail about about all of it. Uh, it, it it's it's the kind of thing that uh, you know I think ten years ago this kind of thing never would have seen the light of day. We've seen all sorts of random allegations come to light in this campaign and have to be fact-checked and, and, and things like that. And so that's the, the, the choice that we confront now is do we acknowledge this thing that's out there and people are reading? Do we fact-check it uh, or do we kind of pretend like it doesn't exist? And I think the only way in which that can work is if you have the vast majority of, of big news organizations – kind of deciding in, in unison, not not coordinating necessarily, but all deciding at the same time that this just isn't something they want to go into detail about. And I think that's what we've seen so far. So I, I would be surprised if there was too many outlets taking an about face on that. Um, but like I said, this is a, a decision that we've had to make with any number of, of different things during the campaign, including, by the way, I would, I would add, uh, the WikiLeaks emails uh, uh, from Hillary Clinton and, and uh, the DNC. So uh, an ongoing thing that we're confronting right now, but I think that the media has certainly gone different directions on this. All right. Thanks you. Thank you so much, Aaron Blake and Alicia Krauss. Thanks to John Dankowski. Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, has never been to Prague. Prague's nice, right? He should go. You, you went there recently, didn't you? Isn't Prague yeah, nice? Prague's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, Michael Cohen, you should go to Prague. <laughs> totally go to Prague. All right? You won't get in any trouble. I'm giving you permission right now. <laughs> 